It is our conviction to preach expositionally through the scriptures. And at times that can be difficult because there can be a variety of themes and exhortations and they don't blend together very well. And we've come to a passage that's something like that. I say that not to lower your expectations, but to induce you to pray and to listen. Perhaps there's something that the Lord would teach you through the disparate different things that this passage uh, sets before our minds. We're going to begin by reading the first nine verses of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. After our brothers praying, I entered in most heartily and I could spend the next hour, I think, praying. So many things that he prayed about are themes and things that we should be before the throne of God often. But before we begin a look at this passage, let's once again pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for not leaving us to ourselves to wander about and grope about blindly, Father. So we pray that you would give light, that you would give understanding, above all, that you would give your Holy Spirit, who is the one who enlightens, who can open the eyes, who can open the ears, who can open the heart to the things of your word. How we stand in need of the help and aid of that comforter that you've left, left to abide with your church until you take her up. So come, thou Holy Spirit of God, enlighten her understanding, help hearer and preacher alike to appreciate your word, to receive it with meekness, for the engrafted word is able to save our souls. Come, Spirit of God, and aid us in all these things, and all the praise and honor be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. In all the annals of Christian hymnology, there is perhaps no hymn so arresting, so riveting as that crucifixion hymn by Thomas Kelly, beginning from the standpoint of a bystander looking on at the crucifixion of our Lord and seeing him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. The third stanza reads thus, Ye who think of sin but lightly, 
nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly, and its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. It is often later in our Christian lives, in our Christian experience, as we grow in grace and knowledge, that we have an increasing sense, an incremental assessment of how evil and how vile and how damnable our sin really is. It begins to dawn upon us slowly as we grow in grace and knowledge. We don't see it right away for all the evil and the awful that it is. We perhaps came to Christ out of desperation. Our lives were a mess. And we came to Christ and things were radically changed. But we didn't have a right assessment of what we were doing wasn't just off in a far country, just lost down the road, but we had sinned against the Most High. We had violated His holy commandments. It begins to dawn on us later. In our better frames, it drives us back upon the cross of Christ for fresh grace, for fresh mercy, and for fresh forgiveness. There alone, we're reminded, there alone can we find that grace. When we see our sins again to crop up in those motions of sins in our members that we thought were all gone, there they still are, moving in our hearts. It should drive us back, back, upon the cross of Christ. In those early baby steps of faith, God, our gentle Heavenly Father, often doesn't overwhelm us, doesn't overwhelm our conscience with a burdened, sensible recognition of the diabolical nature of our sin and guilt. He is very gracious and tender with us. Like a shepherd, he guides us little by little. He doesn't put all the weight of that on our conscience all at once early in our Christian life. A sensible conviction of our sin and guilt does come. It must come. It is the present mission of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So it will come, and it does come, but it doesn't come overwhelmingly all at once. God is very gracious in how He deals with us. But however much, however much it does come, Now, here and there, in the history of the church, there is a Martin Luther who is so overwhelmed, so sensible of his own guilt at the outset of his Christian life that he finds no relief in the rituals and all the forms and outward trappings of the Roman Catholic Church. He is seeking something different, something more immediate, a direct relationship with this God who seems to be all terror to him. But by the grace of God, that gift of faith is given, and he sees that the just shall live by faith. By and by, large forms of religion can be a screen against conviction. It is often the publican and harlots who go into the kingdom of God before those who are in the church. For their violations of God's law are more palpable they're more graphic, they're more ready at hand, they're aware of them. They can grasp their own guiltiness and their need of forgiveness and cleansing and newness of life. It is fresh to them. So our Lord said, 
the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Well, as we come back to the book of Corinthians, this first letter that Paul wrote to them, we might well imagine the Corinthian church to be a great cross-section of a melting pot of the city. People from all kinds of nations and backgrounds were living in that city. Remember, it was built up after it had been utterly wiped out. Phoenicians and so many others came and settled in that city. Paul would later write an abbreviated catalog of the sins that bar a soul from inheriting the kingdom of God. But he holds out, he holds out a grand banner over these saved believers in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And he writes to them and says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul well knew the difficulties, at least by now, that might come with molding together the variety of new converts with all their background, baggage, and idiosyncrasies as they came in to this Corinthian church. He had begun by sounding a note of unity and Catholicity at the beginning of this letter of unity and Catholicity, not simply in the general grace of God, but that saving, transforming grace in Christ Jesus. That would be their unity. That would give them a Catholic spirit, knowing and tasting and seeing the good grace of God in Christ Jesus. These themes will continue on in this chapter, and they are woven throughout the whole of 1 Corinthians. Today we're just going to bite off a few more verses and look at them under the following headings. First of all, gratitude for grace given. Secondly, enriched in expression and enlightenment. And thirdly, the witness confirmed and the waiting continues. And fourthly, continued confirmation and fellowship by his faithfulness. Like I said, these things don't weave together real well together. But let's look at them. Let's look again at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul starts by saying, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. Paul frequently expresses his thanks to God for giving a set of saints a specific church at the beginning of his letters. In nine of his 13 letters, not including the book of Hebrews, he expresses his gratitude at the beginning of those letters, his gratitude for them, the gratitude for the grace that God had given to them. But in four of those letters, he doesn't express that gratitude at the beginning. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Timothy, and Titus. Now, why, we might ask, doesn't Paul start those letters? Well, if you look at those letters, he wants to get right to the subject matter at hand. There was trouble in the Galatian churches. There were things he needed to instruct Timothy in and Titus in, and he wanted to get straight to the matter at hand. But look with me at a couple examples where he does express this gratitude. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, when he greets the Roman Christians... 
he begins in a similar vein in verse 8, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for your all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul had not been to Rome. He had not met these Roman Christians. But he prayed for them, and he thanked God for them, and the grace that had been given to them. And then turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter second sorry 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and we note how he greets them at the beginning of his epistle his second epistle his second letter to the Thessalonians he had been there he had been there and planted a church albeit amidst much difficulty and trouble verse 3 he writes we are bound he had greeted them, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And he says, we, verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Well, then turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And think with me a moment here of the Apostle Paul sitting down to write this letter, to pen this epistle to the Corinthian church. He knew full well, he knew full well that there were a number of hot-button issues that he was going to have to address in this letter. He knew full well he would have to write some hard things. He was going to have to rebuke them sternly for some things. He was going to have to assert his apostolic authority and instruction when he exhorts and writes to them in this first epistle. He knew the church. He had been there a long time. He had spent nearly two years there. He had written a previous letter to them already. And somewhere along the way, he had made a second short trip to the church. So he knew the people. He knew the church. And now he had received reports, troubling reports. He had received at least one letter also from the church with a myriad of issues and questions confronting them that Paul was going to try to address in this first letter. But nevertheless, with all that burden and all those things on his mind, as he sets down to begin that letter, he can say wholeheartedly, he can say sincerely, I thank my God always concerning you. I thank my God always concerning you. What was Paul grateful for? He was grateful for the grace of God shown to them. The grace of God that brings salvation to them, that had turned many of their lives upside down, had transformed them by the mercy of Jesus Christ. So when he looks and thinks back, sitting probably in Ephesus, sitting down to write this epistle back to the Corinthians, he does so with a joyful and a grateful heart for what they are by the grace of God. 
Not what they are in and of themselves, but what they are by the grace of God. He can say wholeheartedly and sincerely that he is thankful. The word given here needs underscoring. It expresses a free giving. It is not contingent on some action or thought or payment on the part of the receiver. It is not compelled from God's hand. This grace that God had shown to them wasn't compelled. No one forced God's hand to show them grace. God did not owe them anything. The one giving has full authority to give or not to give according to his own will, according to the good pleasure of his will. As we read in Romans 9, he showeth mercy to whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he hardens. This is what we mean when we talk about sovereign grace. Sovereign because the one who gives that grace is the sovereign Lord of all, and he can give as it pleases him. God owes us nothing. God owed the Corinthian church nothing. He could have justly and rightly have washed the whole bloody city off the rugged rocks and into the sea to their death and to their eternal damnation, and would be completely just in doing so for the sins past that they were guilty of. But, but, blessed but in the word of God, but God sovereignly chose to bestow saving grace upon some, to call some apart, to gather them into a church. In spite of all the troubles this gave the Apostle Paul, he had so much to be thankful for. Think with me for a minute, brethren. Remember Jesus telling the parable of the wheat and the tares. The farmer went out, planted the wheat. Ah, somebody came along, an enemy has done this, and planted tares among the wheat. And as they grew up, the wheat showed itself to be wheat, and the tares showed itself to be tares. And what were the workers to do? They said, should we go rip up all the tares? He said, no, lest by doing so you disturb the wheat. And so it is. And Jesus said, the field is the world. The world is like that. It's a mingling together of God's people who are the wheat and the rest of mankind. And so it was in Corinth, in the city of Corinth. Here's this little fellowship, this little group that God had called out. They're the wheat. But, as it might prove, not only in the city, but in the church itself, there were tares among them. But to pull them out would trouble those young, uh, tender believers who are just beginning to walk in the faith. Let us gather then a lesson here. What is the lesson? Grace, sovereign grace, is always freely given. And wherever we see, know, of, or hear of some individual, some family, some body of believers where God has bestowed that saving sovereign grace, we should be like the Apostle Paul and say, I thank God always concerning you, that he showed grace to you, showed grace to your family, showed grace to that church over there in that place. Let that be the disposition of our hearts. Well, that brings us in the second place to the enrichment in expression and enlightenment. The enrichment in expression and enlightenment that God showed to the church at Corinth. Look with me at verse 5. Not only was he thankful for the grace given them in Christ Jesus, but 
also that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. You were enriched by him. We read in Ephesians when Jesus ascended to heaven, he led captivity on high and he gave gifts unto men and he bestowed upon the church in Corinth a great number of gifts. Gifts of utterance, expression, where they were able to speak the word of God. They, God had bestowed upon them great gifts and great gifts of insight and knowledge and understanding in the ways of God. Everything, every blessing is from above and flows from this verse is obviously spiritual enrichment. Spiritual enrichment. We read in the book of James, Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him. So here in Corinth, he had chosen these people out and enriched them in faith and enriched them with many gifts upon the church. Now look with me back at verse 5, a little closer. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Some of your versions will say you were enriched in him in all utterance and all knowledge. And so there's some question here. Should that preposition be translated by or in? In. Now some of you are saying, well, who cares, right? <laughs> Why is it important? And is it all that important? Were those gifts given to them as they were unified in Christ and only in Christ those gifts were given to him? Or is it emphasizing the fact that he is the giver of those gifts that he had bestowed and given to the church? Well, it's an interesting question, and it becomes a theological question down the road, especially as you get into chapter 12, 13, and 14 of this book. But it also becomes a question to us as we look throughout the scripture. Is it possible for people to be given gifts by God and not the saving grace of God? Is it possible for them to be given the gift of tongues, perhaps even the gift of healing, and to be doing these things? Well, as we study the scriptures, our answer has to be yes to that. We read about Judas. He went about doing all the things the other apostles were doing, and yet in the end, he was devoid of the grace of God and lost his soul. Look for grace, brethren, above gift. Look for grace above all, not the gifts. Gifts will not save us, and gifts aren't necessarily proof in the pudding that God has called us by His grace. Well, what were these gifts? Utterance, discourse, speech, were one of the great gifts He had bestowed upon them. Learning. Learning is the common word, gnosis, for knowledge and understanding, but it also had the idea of insight. God had given them insight. Now, both these gifts, these two general overarching areas, are a blessing and a gift to the church. But both these gifts, these charismata, as the word is, are acknowledged to be great blessings to the church. They had also become areas of pride and abuse in Corinth that Paul has to address later in this very epistle. In chapter 8, he talks about the fact that knowledge puffs up. 
You have this knowledge. It has a tendency, however, to puff you up. If we don't guard our hearts against knowledge, when we grow in our understanding, it can have that awful effect. It can puff us up and make us prideful. So there's danger when knowledge comes in and it is not checked. Also, the gift of utterance. The gift of utterance had become a great area of difficulties. Chapter 12 through 14. Sometime down the road we'll see that. It had become an area of great difficulty. However, here again at the beginning, Paul does what? He thanks God that God had bestowed richly these gifts upon the church in Corinth. Just because they're abused doesn't mean they're not gifts that we should be thankful for. Thirdly, that leads us in the third place to the witness confirmed and the waiting continues. The witness confirmed and the waiting continues. Look back. We'll we'll begin back in verse 4 and come down to verse 7. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is he speaking of there in verse 6? What is the testimony of Christ? What is the testimony of Christ? Excuse me. It is simply put, the testimony about Christ. What testifies about Christ? Well, Paul and the uh, Apollos had come to Corinth and testified about Christ. Aquila and Priscilla, in their own quiet way, had testified about Christ. Many others, no doubt, had testified about Christ. Perhaps now some uh, reports were reaching them, especially through the synagogues, of all that Christ did back in Jerusalem, back in Judea. So the testimony of Christ had reached the Corinthians. Who he was, his person, and his dual nature, very God, a very God fully man as well, and all that he had done. He had went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. This testimony had reached them. The incarnation, his going about doing good, healing, preaching, the miracles that he had done, all these things testify of him, culminating in his vicarious death and sufferings, and then his glorious resurrection and ascension back to the Father. This and much more is what the Apostle Paul had preached to them and had worked and labored hard to establish their faith in. Not in the Old Testament, drawing on its types and shadows, yes, but pointing always to Christ so that he gave testimony of Christ. Now, he was not an eyewitness of all those things as the other apostles were. Nevertheless, he had seen Christ. Christ met him on the road to Damascus. He could personally testify of Christ himself. But he also knew and understood the rest of these things as well. Look with me over at chapter 2 and verse 1 of this epistle. Note what he says here, the Apostle Paul. He says, And I, brethren, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom, 
declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what he wanted to testify of. Your versions might have mystery in verse 1 instead of uh, testimony. And often that word mystery is used for what was formerly hidden, but now has come to light and revelation, now that Christ has come. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Quickly, two, two other verses, just to underscore what this testimony of Christ is all about. Revelation chapter 1, first of all. Revelation chapter 1. John, John interjects here, verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was punished by being exiled to the isle of Patmos. Why? Because he had been about preaching. He had been about testifying of Christ. Turn with me to Revelation 12 as well. Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> we'll read the first five verses and then verse 17. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and, his, and in his throne. So without delving into this in detail, that man-child is none other than Christ. Now look, at that, look with me at verse 17. The dragon is none other than Satan, as will be identified in this chapter. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The devil is after the people of God, who hold by faith the testimony of Jesus Christ unto this very day. Are you holding fast the testimony of Christ? Are you holding fast the testimony of Christ? Jesus said, remember, if you confess me before men, I also will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. Are you one of those who have the testimony of Christ and hold it fast by faith. Let me ask this also. How then was this witness, this testimony, confirmed in them? Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, 
Well, it was confirmed by the miracles that were done oftentimes. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 16. I'm watching the clock. I don't want to... (laughs) But we'll do this quick. Mark chapter 16, the very last chapter, the very last verses of Mark chapter 16. Jesus Christ, after His ascension, He had commissioned His apostles to go out and to preach the word to every creature, to every creature under heaven, uh, to call them into the kingdom. And in verse 19, we read this. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they, the apostles, went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So how was, how was the witness of Christ that Paul had testified of confirmed? Well, oftentimes it was by miracles. As we read through the book of Acts, we see that God attended his word with many miracles. But we don't see those miracles today, but we do have them recorded for us, inscribed in the scriptures of truth, so that we can hear the testimony and know the testimony of them even to this day. But another thing that helped to confirm the witness, the testimony of Christ in them, was by the change, the change it produced in them. Such were some of you, remember. Such were some of you. And as they saw friends and neighbors transformed by the grace of God, they could see that this preaching about Jesus Christ had a dramatic effect in their lives. There was proof in it. There was power in it. There was transformation. Such were some of you. And not only in those gross, blatant sins, but in the little things and in the dispositions of our hearts. Is there a change? Has God confirmed His testimony in you? The third way he confirms his testimony. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Back just a few pages. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. We'll back up to verse 14. He says, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. There, are you a son of God? Are you being led by the Spirit of God? For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Then note, the Spirit himself also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is the confirmation of the testimony of Christ that that Grace has been shown even to us. The Spirit of God is going to bear witness internally. There's going to be a change in us externally, but there's going to be that confirmation and witness and confirmation of the Spirit within us. The Spirit Himself bears witness in us. But notice, uh, secondly, back to 1 Corinthians verse 7. He says, so that you come behind, come short in no gift. Here again, emphasizing the gifts that God had bestowed upon the church. Here again, he uses the word charismata, 
Now, charismatic can refer to those revelatory charismatic gifts, but it can also be used in a more general and generic sense. And I think he's doing a little of both here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. They are to uh, use those gifts. They are to occupy until he comes. But he directs them to this. What? What's he direct them to? Waiting, eagerly waiting, for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God had gifted them. They're to carry out these things as a church. Paul's going to give them all kinds of instruction, how to live out the Christian life, how they're to occupy until he comes. But at the same time, coupled with that always, we're to be eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he is revealed from heaven in all his power and glory. Now let us ask ourselves, have we thought about that much this week? Have we thought about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? When he's going to split the heavens? When the dead in Christ will be raised first? When we'll caught up to meet him in the air as the scripture describes it? Have we thought much of that? Or have we been so occupied with this earth and all the cares of this life? Is it having a choking influence on our lives? Or are we thinking and waiting eagerly? As we carry out all those other things that we need to be doing, is there yet that firm hope in us? Waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to rend the heavens, to come down, to visit us. Oh, is that our hope? Is that our expectation? It was for the Corinthians. It should be for all the people of God. Is it for you? Is it for me? Is it for us? Is that our hope? Are we waiting for the return of Christ? Is that just a plank in our Christian platform? Yes, we believe in the visible return of Jesus Christ to the earth, to the establishment of his kingdom, the overthrow of wicked. We believe that, yes, that's a, that's a plank in our platform. Or is it something we eagerly expect and wait for? Is it something that motivates our living and quickens us as we carry out the things were to do as we occupy till he comes. That brings us in the fourth place to continued confirmation and fellowship by his faithfulness. Continued confirmation and fellowship by his faithfulness. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Backing up to verse 7 to get the context. So that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He will confirm you unto the end. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Say unto my soul, the psalmist says, I am thy salvation. We need continued confirmation if we're going to continue on that narrow path that leads to life. We're going to grow discouraged. We're going to grow doubtful. We're going to wonder, is this all true? Is it really going to culminate in what was promised? It seems to be going so terribly. I don't see the fruit of it in my life. But God is 
faithful. God is faithful to work to confirm that in us. Note, by His Holy Spirit testifying with our spirit, but by the change in our lives that should spur us on, and always having that hope of His return. The, the hymn is correct when it says, Those who know it best, know the gospel of Christ best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Is that our disposition? We want to hear it again. We want it confirmed. We want the testimony of Christ. Such continued confirmation should have a sanctifying influence on us that we might be blameless, that we might be blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. Not perfect, but blameless. There's not going to be some gross, dark sin uh, hovering over us if we're faithfully walking with Him. Turn with me to Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm. Blameless doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that we're going to walk in such a way. We keep short accounts with God. We're in fellowship with Him. We're constantly looking for Him. Psalm 19, the end of the psalm, uh, verse 13 after saying, after declaring, the heavens declare the glory of God, His general revelation in creation. After speaking of His special revelation in His Word, the law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7, converting the soul, testifying to the power of the Word of God to convert the soul. Notice how He ends, verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. There's coming that day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming, right? Blameless. Here again he says, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? You remember when Jesus said, when he was on the way to the cross, and he said, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your time of seeming triumph. But this day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the day of his vindication. He will show that he was just and holy, and all that he did in weakness was to save a people, and now he's going to come in power and show and vindicate His glorious name. Is that our hope and is that our expectation? And are we waiting indeed for that? Well, just a couple added words of application and we'll be done. First of all, remember going back to the beginning, we ought to be grateful for grace. Grateful for grace shown to us, grateful to, for grace shown to friends, family, whoever. Every time we hear the grace of God being shown to a lost soul, it ought to be an occasion of great gratitude on our part for fresh praise and worship and renewing of us in our Christian faith. Secondly, let us renew our intensity of expectation of the return of Christ. Let us renew our intensity. Are we eagerly waiting? eagerly waiting. We can eagerly wait while we do all the other stuff. But it has to be there. That has to be something boiling up in our breast, hoping and waiting for the day. 
We can look out at this world and say there's the promise of build back better. But this world is going to be corrupt to the very end. And our hope is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not in any program of men. Whatever, even the best of men, even if our favorite political candidates get elected, what we look for, what our eager expectation is, is the Lord Jesus Christ to come and glorify His name, gather His elect. Finally, thirdly and finally, God's faithfulness. Notice how He ends this. God is faithful. That's our hope. What are we resting on? Oh, I read the Bible every day. My faithfulness? No. Let's rest on God's faithfulness. God is faithful to confirm us. And to the end, we read in the book of Psalms, to feed on His faithfulness. I don't know what that means, but think about it. Feed on His faithfulness. Let that be our bread. Let that be our meat and drink. God is faithful. God's begun this work in me. He's going to complete it unto the end. He's going to present me blameless. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Keep me back. Let the meditation of my heart be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. Let that be our disposition, resting always on God's faithfulness to carry us and bring us to that very end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the riches, the riches of your word. Lord God, we would be lost without its guidance. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do that work of confirmation in any wavering soul here today. Confirm your grace in them. Say unto their soul, I am thy salvation. Come by thy spirit and bear witness that they are children of God. We all need that encouragement. And Father, those who know you not, who are sitting here today and say, Ah, I don't know what he's talking about. I've never had that experience. Father, may this be the day of salvation for them by your grace. Oh, Father, we praise you, the grace you've shown and your patience as you gather out your people out of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. But, Father, as you do so, we can say with John at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come, Come, our hope is not in this world, and we grow weary of it. Come, Lord Jesus, glorify your name and establish the day of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, we're dismissed.